be seated. I recall when Jonathan was born, his presence in our home changed everything. There were new sounds with him present. Uh, There wasn't a lot of crying. Uh, Jonathan didn't even cry upon birth. In fact, the uh, doctor lowered his APGAR score uh, because of that. Uh, but he, he really was um, uh, really easily excitable. In fact, what we did hear a lot of was a lot of cackling and laughter. Uh, and he um, really began, we suspect that, uh, though, though we're not 100% sure, we suspect a lot of that began uh, when Michelle was expecting him especially in the third trimester, I would get up to speak and he would start doing a gymnastics routine at the sound of my voice. And uh, then he was born. And uh, I remember soon after we brought him into big church when uh, his immunities had built up and he was able to come in, I was speaking to a Baptist men's group and uh, he and uh, Sharon Michelle were there. And the moment I began to speak, he started heckling me from the back of the crowd. Well, he didn't heckle, he was cackling. He was accustomed to doing that with the the sound of my voice. So the the house sounded different. Uh, The home also looked different. It was uh, clobbered with uh, baby toys and baby clothes. He was celebrated on both sides of Sherry Michelle's family and mine upon his birth. Now, I think he was about number 59 on... Uh, Michelle's father signed about number 59 on her mother's side. And so there were a lot of people. And she was the oldest grandchild on her mother's side. And he was the first uh, grandchild to be born into the family. And so he got an awful lot of attention and uh, too, many, too many toys. Of course, you know, his favorite one was a cardboard box and a laundry basket. The laundry basket was lots of fun. Uh, so the, the house sounded different and it looked different. And without going into too much detail, it sure did begin to smell different as well. In many, many ways, especially the baby powder, which was uh, in profuse amounts was very necessary. Uh, But uh, everything changed with the coming and the advent of this infant into our home. Now, if an infant can change a home like that with its mere presence, just imagine what the presence of God could do in your life. I mean, isn't it reasonable to expect that if Almighty God in Jesus Christ resides in you, there's going to be a difference. There are going to be some signs that He's present. And that was certainly the case in Exodus 33 and 34 with Moses. Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai and in the disappointment of the golden calf made a difference. And it was very, very clear. And there are a number of signs here that demonstrate the intensity of God's presence even in our own lives. And I want to divide these into just a couple of categories. One are vital signs. Vital signs. Vital signs are hidden from the ordinary eye, and we need medical instruments of one type or another to, uh, to know them. In fact, someone could, be, um, uh, someone could look like they have no sign of life at all, And still have very good vital signs. I did that about 2 o'clock this morning. I was dead to the world. But my vital signs apparently were pretty good because I woke up. 
And so uh, the truth is, is that there are some internal things that take place in us that are indicators of health. And in Exodus 33 and 34, we find some instruments to check these. One is a spiritual hunger. In verse number 18, in the midst of all this crisis and tragedy with the sin of the golden calf, Moses cries out and he says, please show me your glory. Now you can sympathize with Moses with wanting to see the glory of God at this point. He's seen plenty of the depravity of Israel. He's got to have his eyes lifted and his soul filled with that which comes from the very throne of God. He wants to see the glory of God, the, the, the brilliance, the majesty of God. Moses wanted more of God and His glory, not merely God's stuff. Now that is a remarkable thing. You know, you'd think that God's presence with him in the court of Pharaoh would have been enough. That it would satiate him, would satisfy him to where he would be filled up and full. Uh, you, you would expect, if not that, then the manifestation of the power of God in the plagues as God defeated and competed with the gods of Egypt, especially Pharaoh, would have satiated and satisfied Moses. And then you would expect, certainly if not that, then the great miracle of the Red Sea would do that for Moses. That it would satiate and satisfy him. And if not that, then the waters of Meribah and the quail and the manna would have taken care of this need. But Moses discovered something that every child of God discovers, and that is once you get a taste of God, one is not enough. You've got to have more. and Your heart longs and hungers for Him. Maybe something no one else will ever see, but more about Jesus would I know. More of His glory would I Show more of His saving grace to see, more of His love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for me. I want more, Moses said. Thank you for what I've had, but I've got to have more. He wanted more of God's glory, not merely more water, not merely more miracles from a rock, not merely more Red Seas, not merely more plagues and demonstrations of the power of God, not merely more power before someone like Pharaoh, but more of God. And no substitute was adequate, not even religious substitutes. Tom Ellis said, when our spiritual life begins to grow stale and there's a lost sense of God's presence, we often turn to substitutes to replace that which has been lost. Some very good things, in fact. Those substitutes can be subtly said, even possessing their own level of legitimacy. But they are still substitutes for knowing God. Hours of study, doctrinal orthodoxy, feverish religious activity and compassionate ministry to others are each commendable, but they cannot take the place of knowing God. Vance Havner said, you can be just as straight as a gun barrel doctrinally and just as empty as one too. Now, let me say, I commend doctrinal orthodoxy. God said it, and that settles it. And His Word is a firm foundation for our faith. 
We've been dealing with objections to the Bible for 2,000 years, and a posture of doubt is never appropriate towards the Word of God. It's usually the weakest intellectual position as well. And if you ever experience doubts, we understand, but don't live there. Be patient with God, walk with Him, take the same approach to the Bible that Jesus does. But I need to say to you that once you've accumulated all of the Christian research that uh, points to the truthfulness and reliability of the Scripture, you still need to know God. I appreciate Christian service as well. I do. Fervor, feverish, fervent service, in fact. Given my life to it, you have too. But still, there is more to God than merely doing for Him. We've got to know Him. There is no adequate substitute for knowing God. That's one vital sign, and having a hunger for Him. But then second, there's progress. Moses was interrupted by the incident of the golden calf. Now, when he was interrupted, it was God who interrupted him, because the Lord said, your people are worshiping a golden calf now that you're gone away. Well, Moses was in the process of communing with God, it was broken because of the sin of Israel. He went and took care of it, came back to God. And in chapter 34, verses 1 through 4, was able to pick up where he left off. So there's a sense of making progress in his walk with God. Each year, we can witness progress in our walk with God. Our best day should have never been our yesterdays. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that even though my home church, where I came to the Lord, was... Um, uh, progressive and moved forward and changed easily, they still taught me that old, old song, Every Day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day I know Him, I love Him more and more. And I heard that, and I heard older people singing it. And something happened in my heart the first few times I heard that song. It was communicated to me that... Every day with Jesus could be, possibly, better than the day before. So my heart there began to aspire for that. And not to be satisfied with yesterday's prayers, and not to be satisfied with yesterday's encounters with the living God, but to keep pressing on and moving on and straining and pursuing God with everything I had. Because this day can be sweeter than the day before. And oh, dear God, I hope this year is better than the last as well. I want to know him more and make progress. Christians are not meant to stay the same. Christians are not meant to decline or to disintegrate in their walk with God. God promises they can increasingly experience more and more of him. Now, you know why, of course. Ephesians 3.8, the riches of Christ are what? Unfathomable. You know what a fathom is. You sound the depths. You can't send, and, and, and that's how sailors could tell. They would fathom the depths. That's how they would tell the depth of water they were in in ancient days with their ships. They would put out a sounding, and they would wait for it to come back. And, and that would tell you. You know, It depends on how many seconds it took for the sound to come back. And they would determine how deep of water they were in. Jesus Christ's depths are unfathomable. You send a sounding down, it doesn't come back. In fact, soundings that were sent centuries and millenniums ago are still traveling down. They've not hit the bottom because there's no bottom with Jesus Christ. His riches are unfathomable. He is infinite. He is eternal. He, was, he is beyond measure. 
In fact, he takes the universe, which may be expanding, in fact, and still holds it in the palm of his hand. And that's how mighty and awesome he is. We can make progress. And then prayer. Prayer is something that is, for the most part, hidden from the eyes of others. But in verse 18, verse, uh, verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses prayed that God would show him his glory And it happens in verse number 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped. He asked for something in verse 18 of chapter 33, and in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, he got it. God came through. It should be an unusual thing for our prayers not to be answered. It should not be the standard experience. It should be something that is highly unusual. It should also be very unusual that our heart does not burst at the opportunity to get alone with God in prayer. We should desire more and more Prayer. We can speak to him about matters great and matters small and praiseworthy each walking hour. And the degree to which we want to pray reveals our heart and our walk with God. So these are some vital signs. It's important to do a personal checkup with hunger for him, progress in our walk, and a greater growing desire to pray and have answered prayers. But then there are also visible signs. Visible signs. Now these are vital signs. But eventually they will appear in our behavior. There's some things that will appear if we are indeed walking with God. Vance Havner used to say that what is down in the well eventually comes up in the bucket to change metaphors. And that's true. Our soul, our soul will appear in our behavior, our choices, our speech, our spending, these kinds of things, our priorities, our loves, our zeals how we spend our time. So there are some visible signs in Exodus 34, 28 to 35. One is spiritual control. In verse number 28, it says of Moses, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. That must have been a miracle. I don't know. I don't imagine how you go 40 days without water unless God intervenes, and apparently it's what he did. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses was able to experience spiritual control because God was giving him the power to do so. And that's what God does with his people when they're walking with him. He gives them spiritual control. They are disciplined. Moses gave God 40 days and God took them. God, in fact, required them and Moses gave them. God controlled Moses' time. His life was under the control of the Lord. That worries me then that I hear some things at times and through the years from Christian people like, Lord, forgive me, but, and then they gossip. Or, I probably shouldn't say this, and they go ahead and say it. Or, I ought not to, but, or, you know, this is not the kind of thing a Christian would do. However, and what they've just done is that they have revealed by their speech that they are consciously stepping outside the control of the Lord. Intentionally, and and, and being presumptive that God will tolerate it, And I I suspect maybe even a little manipulative that will approve of it because they've covered it over with spiritual-sounding rebellion. 
well, this is just a small thing. They're not a chainsaw murderer. They're not an ax murderer out of Texas. My goodness. Okay, well, if it's a small thing, knock it off. If it's such a small thing. If it's such a small thing, abandon it. Don't we have enough trouble with big things? I mean, wouldn't it be neat to have a victory over something at least, especially if it indeed is a small thing? I have um, heard people, in fact, directing comments to me through the years, that appealed to me to make a decision because there was more money involved or more opportunity or larger numbers. And while I think that those things should be minor issues taken into consideration as you pray through and think through God's will in making a decision, these are not the defining issues that decide for us what we choose in life. There's one thing that decides that, and that's God's will. Doesn't matter the money, it doesn't matter the opportunity, and it doesn't matter the numbers. It must be God's will. I uh, was at a church, a rural church in college, where I was doing music and youth, and uh, uh, realized that and learned there that the pastor ends up being the ceiling for other staff members' ministries. And staff members find a hard time rising above the level of the pastor. The pastor becomes a ceiling. So the pastor bears a great responsibility to walk with God and to do his will by his power. And I was in a situation where my ministry probably wasn't going to go any further because of some limitations uh, with um, my sweet pastor. don't want to be critical, but um, there was some immaturity there. That was quite stunning, to be quite honest with you. But an opportunity arose to work with a pastor I really admired and I thought was very spiritually mature. It was in a town not too far away. I was in a rural area. It was a town of 10,000. If I had gone there as youth minister, which that was another advantage, instead of a combo position, it was one responsibility, um, my money would double each month. Uh, the youth ministry there in the interim was larger than the youth ministry I had. I had to, uh, my, I, the church I arrived at, I had, we didn't have one and had to create one. And... Uh, that's when I learned the value of knocking on doors. And uh, uh, the Lord blessed that greatly. The pastor also, in my view, was far more mature than what I was working with. And I remember being in the pastor's home and the pastor and two of my friends trying to sell me on the position. And it shocked me. It sounded like a sales pitch. Now, I'd only been a Christian not even three years, maybe that. And I kept listening to this and something in my spirit grew very cold at the sales pitch. And I grew, grew worried. I tried to set it aside, I prayed about it, and I asked God what I should do. And I was willing to set aside this offensive sales pitch, this unspiritual sales pitch, just to do God's will. And God was silent. And I've learned that when God says nothing, you do nothing. Unless you absolutely have to. Then you go with the best wisdom that you've got. And you ask for it. Well, I didn't have to move. I didn't have to leave. And so God said nothing. And so I did nothing. I turned the pastor down. And these two friends and this pastor got angry with me. 
were very angry with me, very upset with me that I didn't take it. In fact, in the years after that, that pastor was rude and ugly to me in public. And a couple of times went out of his way to embarrass me publicly. He never got over it. The pastor I was working with at the time, whose maturity I doubted, never did that to me. He was always very kind in public and in private with me. There were just some other things that kind of worried me. Well, a friend of mine went there to this church starting of the summer. And by the end of the summer, they had to let him go because they didn't have any more money to pay the guy. Their giving had dropped and plummeted so poorly, they couldn't afford a youth minister anymore. No wonder God didn't call me there. See, But you see, the point that I'm trying to make is that while we should think through and pray through the secondary issues of the money and the secondary issues of the opportunity and the secondary issue of the numbers, the primary consideration is what is God calling me to do? What is his will? That is always number one. We are to be under the control of the Lord. But the second thing is a radiant countenance. In verse 29 of chapter 34, it says, So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, when he came down from Mount Sinai, and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked to the Lord. Here, here, we find that Moses has spent time with God and it shows up on his countenance and his face. Whenever someone has been walking with God, it does something to the heart. It relieves the heart. God's presence comforts the heart. God's presence gives strength to the heart and it therefore shows up on the face. Have you ever met anybody and you, you hadn't spoken a word to them, but they may walk into a room, walk into church, walk into a Sunday school room, and you just know they belong to Jesus. You hear it in the tone of their voice. You see it in their step. You see it in their face. And, and I'm, I'm real careful about being presumptuous and assuming too much about people and too little, but uh, both. But you just know, and there have been times I've just actually inquired and said, are, are you a Christian? And they said, well, yes. And we're off for 15 minutes in a conversation about how good Jesus is. This is the kind of countenance that Moses had. He didn't need to say anything, but it was clear that he belonged to the Lord. It should appear on the countenance. But then there's another, a third vital sign, unconscious influence. Exodus 34:29 says that Moses did not know the skin of his face was shining. Moses had no idea that this was taking place. He just came down and everybody is moved. And he's not conscious of the cause. In fact, it's so brilliant, they eventually ask Moses to put a veil over his face. He removes it when he talks to the Lord. And Paul picks up on this same uh, idea with us in our walk with God in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. But Moses was completely unaware. Hey, do you know what? Most people are aware of what's remarkable, remarkable about them and they try to get others to notice. Israel was knowledgeable of what was remarkable about Moses and, they, Moses, and they had to get him to know about it. Because he wasn't aware. He was not consumed with himself. He just simply was concerned about walking with God. Barry St. Clair used to say, if you'll take care of the depth of your walk with God, God will take care of the breadth of your influence. Now, if you get that reversed, let me tell you what, what, what uh, danger you run into. You may temptation you'll face. 
If you don't trust God with your influence and consume yourself with the depth of your walk, what you may be tempted to do, and please be careful about this, is that you'll take your influence into your own hands and will try to manufacture influence. Churches do this with gimmicks. Churches do this with unbiblical ministries, things not found in the Scripture, minimize what's in the Scripture and maximize the trends that come out of the publishing houses and other places. And they get zealous about copying other churches instead of seeking God. Leaders, what leaders will do is that leaders will become real authoritarian and they will engage in coercion and sometimes bully tactics and manipulation in order to have influence and to get their agenda implemented. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got to say to you, God's will has got to be done God's way. And it's always in the way of the servant. It doesn't mean if you're a leader that you can't lead and be proactive. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be loyal to leadership. I'm not saying that at all. But ladies and gentlemen, what we need to rely upon, as Tom Eliff says, is that we need to rely in, among God's people. We need to rely on the Jesus in us speaking to the Jesus in them and let Jesus lead the way. That's the kind of heart and that's the kind of life that we've got to that we've got to have. Now, this is not only influential with the, um, with the church and with Christian people. It's also influential with the world. You take a look at the early church. They didn't have any money. I mean, Peter and John, James, and Andrew gave up their small business three years before. I mean, they're broke. They don't have a thing. And they don't have language skills to cover up the earth. They don't have a supporting mission board. They have no popular appeal. They have no friends in influential places. And yet, over the next couple of decades, their enemies would say of them that their influence was so great that they turned the world upside down. Now, you and I know they turned it right side up. It's Satan that turns it upside down. But they turned it right side up, and they penetrated the Roman Empire with the gospel to where, within three centuries, it became the dominant faith of the empire. In fact, Constantine looked at the empire and wanted to unify it and saw there were so many Christians there, he just declared it the state religion. An abomination to be sure, should have never done that. You don't do that with government. But nevertheless, the, whole, the, the cause and the occasion of that was that it had covered up the empire. They walked with Jesus and he made a difference. And then there, there's another um, visible sign. And I've struggled with exactly what to call this, but I'm going to call this the wordless, the wordless relationship. The story here of Moses' walk with God on Mount Sinai in chapter 33 and now in chapter 34 is expressed with an economy of terms. It's brief, it's sparse, it is short. There's not an awful lot of elaboration. There's not a lot of elaboration with Moses' 40 days on the mount. Look, look what it says in verse number 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, now this is in the, um, this would be in the uh, tabernacle. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. That was the limit of his comments. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now look back at verse 28. This is all we have about the 40 days in verse 28. This is about all we've got in the tabernacle in verse 34 and 35. Look at the 40 days on Mount Sinai in verse 28 again. 
So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. That's all it says about the 40 days and the tabernacle. Now, I think it's safe to assume there's a whole lot more that took place. And Moses was a gifted author. Oh, it's wonderful to read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They're highly organized. They're stylistic. Uh, They've got a remarkable style. Um, There are themes that are consistently carried and repeated. I mean, Moses is a tremendous author. When all of the critics of Moses die, we will still be reading Moses, and we won't be reading his critics. See? That's how good of an author he was. So Moses was not lacking in the ability to articulate his walk with God. Moses was not lacking in rhetorical skill. He didn't lack anything. Obviously, the first five books of the Old Testament are the work of a remarkable author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just remarkable. And you're telling me with all that giftedness as an author, all Moses can record in verse 28, about the 40 days is verse 28? Yeah. Do you know why? Because there are some encounters with God that you just can't put into words. The love is so intense. The glory is so vivid. You cannot capture it with the human language. It's impossible to do. And so this is Moses. He's got a depth to him. He's not a mile wide and an inch deep. He's not so busy that he can't get close to God. There are some people who are, what you see is what you get, but I fear there's some people that are the kind of people that what you see is all they got. There's not a depth that is there. And that's why I'm glad that our music and worship ministry is leading us to learn new music. Sometimes, while I appreciate old music, Sometimes the old words are just not adequate to express the new thing I've learned from God. We need something new. And that's why the scripture commands us six different times, sing to the Lord a new song. It's commanded, it's repeated, because we need something new to declare his glory. Not to say we don't appreciate some of the things God said in the past. In fact, some are surprised to hear this, but God was working before the 21st century ever showed up. So we appreciate that. Appreciate theological vocabulary. Going to pass it on to others, hopefully with new arrangements, of course. But we need new music because we have got to find a new way to say something about the glory of God. Now, it's entirely appropriate this evening for us to contemplate a walk with God with the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there is a word that is used that is very appropriate for our evening tonight. It's not a word that's used often in the scripture for the Lord's Supper, but it's a good word. And it's the word communion. That means coming in common with the Lord Jesus and coming in common with one another. And I want us to do all we can tonight in a time of prayer to make sure that we are united and at one with him, and as best we can this evening, to be at one with one another. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've been baptized, and you're right with God and right with your local church, you're in good standing with your church, you're invited to the table. 
We can't judge you on that basis. You've got to judge yourself. The Bible is very clear about that. So we don't police or patrol the Lord's Supper. But let me encourage you, if you have any doubt about whether you're right with God in anything he says in his word, it's okay to postpone taking the Lord's Supper till the next time. You do not want to eat and drink judgment to yourself as 1 Corinthians 11 warns. That's why for six weeks we've had in the bulletin an announcement about our Lord's Supper this evening and an exhortation for people to read the biblical text and to make sure that they're ready before God. Parents, uh, it is wise and advisable if your children do not know the Lord, have not followed him in baptism, uh, to help them postpone taking the Lord's Supper tonight. You want to wait till after that. You want to keep it special, and you want to make sure that even your children are right with the Lord in that. So I want to take a moment to pray. And as I pray, our deacons are going to come and get prepared for the Lord's Supper during the prayer time, and then we will uh, exalt the Lord and celebrate him this evening in our communion service. Let's pray together. And probably, as you're praying, there's something you may want to praise the Lord for and thank Him for. Would you do that now? Can you take a moment to thank Him for the signs of life? that you've been able to discern and recognize in yourself? Perhaps this evening there is a need for some confession. I want to assure you, there's nothing in this world the Lord would rather do than forgive and to cleanse. If you'll turn your heart towards the light of God's holiness and commands, he'll cleanse you by the blood of Christ and you'll have fellowship with one another. The Lord's Supper will make obvious tonight he loves sinners. Even someone the equivalent of a Jewish terrorist bleeding out on the cross and the Lord promised him today you should be with me in paradise he can forgive you and he'd love to now finally why don't you Why don't you tell the Lord that you're giving all of yourself to him that he intends to have. Give yourself until he's satisfied. Our Father, we thank you. You were so worthy and trustworthy. Thank you that your son reigns. And I, I want to praise you that as we celebrate his death this evening, I'm just so glad he's alive today and we can walk with him. 
we can be close to him. We bless you that we don't walk alone. We don't walk merely with each other, though I'm grateful for that. But we actually get to walk with the King of Kings. And we're friends. Bless your name. Would you please honor this service now? And Lord Jesus, magnify yourself far beyond than we've ever imagined or even anticipated. For your sake and name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.